Welcome back to Dancing Dog Blog. I'm your host, Mary Haight, and we have a special podcast today dedicated to the late Dr. Sophia Yin, an internationally acclaimed animal behaviorist who took her own life in September, and to veterinarians, technicians, shelter and rescue workers, and caregivers who face depression, compassion fatigue, and possible suicide. Dr. April Steele of Tender Touch Animal Hospital in Colorado and spokesvet for Partners for Healthy Pets is back and is introducing us to Dr. Jane Shaw, Associate Professor of Veterinary Communications at Colorado State University. Dr. Shaw has a veterinary degree, a PhD in epidemiology, and is a recipient of the 2008 Leo K. Bustad Companion Animal Veterinarian Award and the Colorado Veterinary Medical Association Outstanding Faculty of the Year Award in 2011. Dr. Shaw is called upon internationally and nationally to conduct skills-based communications workshops at veterinary conferences and symposia. We hope to help bring this important topic into the spotlight and spark open discussions in businesses where employees are at risk. We'll discuss symptoms, tools, and coping skills to manage risk for practice-level use, as well as for shelters and individuals involved in loan pursuits like rescue. If you can, please share this with those you know in the animal care and welfare sector. Nice to have you back, April. Thanks, Mary. It's really good to be back again. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Believe me, this is uh, this is a great topic to be talking about. Um, and let's just get right into it here. Uh, what is compassion fatigue, sometimes known as CF, and how was it discovered, and how serious is it? Um, let's see. Let's start off with what compassion fatigue is. It's made up of two components, um, and as a broad definition, it's a, a uh, experience of severe emotional, spiritual, physical exhaustion, and even psychological exhaustion. And the two components are, um, one is related to the work environment, and it's called burnout. And that is related to our satisfaction with our day-to-day work routine, our tasks, our culture, um, and the greater work environment that we are in. So that's one contributor to compassion fatigue. The second contributor is called secondary traumatic stress, and so as medical caregivers, we get exposed to challenging situations um, that are, can be really difficult to see. So, for instance, an animal who's in pain, a hit by car, or an animal that's abandoned by a human being, or an animal that's been abused or mistreated. And so seeing these things um, can cause a level of exhaustion, emotional exhaustion inside of us, and we can carry that trauma with us. And so it's both a combination of burnout as well as um, secondary traumatic stress that contributes to compassion fatigue. I think it was first discovered in the 1950s, and then someone named um, Robert Figley was, is a big researcher in this area, and he started doing work on this in the 1980s. And it's serious because if it progresses, um, compa- compassion fatigue can be part of um, psychological morbidity. So it can be a source of anxiety and depression, and prolonged anxiety and depression can be at risk for um, what we worry about is substance abuse or suicide or um, more severe mental illness as a, as a sequelae um, to feeling compassion fatigue for a long and prolonged period of time. 
from my perspective, compassion fatigue is what happens when you're faced with very emotional situations, whether it's anxiety, grief, in our case quite often, um, fear, frustration on a regular basis, and don't have the ability to process that or have a break from it. And it's very, very serious. I mean, depression is a part of it. Um, we are talking about this in a, for, um, a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is that suicide has been on the national radar and in veterinarian suicide is a really huge problem. And it's true for other animal caretakers as well. So, um, the importance cannot be overemphasized and it really develops when you just, you know, we all got into this field because we care so much. And so it, it, just by function, the people who care the most about animals are the ones that see the saddest aspects of, of what happens with animals. And I think that that really affects us in a profound way. So uh, what are the most common symptoms? They look a lot like symptoms of stress. Um, so common symptoms of stress are like headaches, gastrointestinal upset, being irritable, um, maybe withdrawing from others, um, having difficulty concentrating. Again, what we talked about earlier, um, exhaustion. And the other thing that's kind of tricky is despite the exhaustion, sometimes you can not sleep very well. Um, so you feel so tired and all I want to do is sleep, but your, your brain is racing and you're having trouble sleep. Maybe having low self-esteem, feeling irritable or moody around other people, a decreased sense of accomplishment or fulfillment in your life. So... What I see with compassion fatigue, and I see it sometimes in myself, and I, I'm always on surveillance for seeing it in my staff and my colleagues, um, include being a little bit sensitive, um, not being able to deal with things that are part of everyday life, um, being irritable. Um, an example is when a, a appointment is for at 3 o'clock and someone shows up at 3.05 and I hear my associate doctor just can't believe they're late. I don't know how I'm going to catch up. I'm, I'm all I'm all behind, and I start thinking, okay, that's a not exactly a reasonable response to being five minutes late. What's going on here? And it almost always is compassion fatigue. I can look at the schedule and see that um, that same associate has euthanized two animals that day, and then she starts acting that way, and it's just so obvious to me. So, being irritable is a very common sign. Um, being yes, sad, and, and that that is probably. Uh, we often hear the public complain about shelter workers in that vein as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's true. I mean, I don't think it's unique to us. I think DMV workers have compassion fatigue <laughs> as well, right? Um, but we, uh, I think irritability and having to hide that. So we get very, very good at walking into a room no matter how sad or anxious or we are, what we, if we just had to put an animal to sleep and it was very emotional, we have to walk into that next room where there's a puppy and act like everything's fine and give that client just as much attention and compassion as we did the last client. And that is what we have to do, but it does often make us want to hide how we're feeling and make us very good at hiding what we're feeling. So it sneaks out in those ways of irritability and not sleeping, kind of ruminating on things at night and waking mm-hmm. up in the middle of the night and thinking about them. Um, some people, and I'm included in this sometimes, I eat. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you just start you just start doing behaviors that that numb you, and um, they're they're not they're not helpful. That's interesting, and and you know perhaps we should all take a moment to 
visualize ourselves in the in the waiting room, waiting for the vet mm-hmm. uh, to come in, wondering where they are, thinking, "Wow, it's been 20 minutes." You know, um, where is anybody? Uh, yeah. And and it could be that they're trying to take a beat, take a step, take a breath, so that they can come in and actually focus on on your animal and not the animal that just died. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully the client's not so much in that situation, but when they are, it's so nice to have a little compassion for the yeah. veterinarian or the rescue worker or whomever that is that's in that situation. Yeah, yeah. I don't know any veterinarians that hang out in the back and drink coffee and make people wait. <laughs> you know, they're always dealing with the crisis, pulling themselves together, yes, trying yes. to talk to someone on the phone that's urgently just frantic about something going on with their pets and trying to get to that client as quickly as they can. And that's not the client's fault. I mean, the client deserves really good care, um, but it is reality. What coping skills or tools can be used to manage the, the risk of falling into this pattern of behavior? So a simple um, way of looking at this is that cat compassion fatigue results from caring for the needs of others before caring of the needs for yourself. So when you ask about tools to manage risk, the tools relate to putting into place plans of self-care. And that's very individualistic. So for me, um, that means a few things. Um, It means going to bed early every night at a decent hour. It means eating healthily. And it means exercising regularly. I go to Pilates um, class two days a week. And I have to get out in the outdoors on the weekend. So that might be skiing or hiking or biking. Um, my walks with my dog are really therapeutic for me. So we each have our own things that kind of what I call fill our bucket. Yeah, so coping skills are really important. I think they need to become habits because if they don't, they're the first things to disappear when we're in this situation or feeling like we're exhausted and don't have any reserve to do anything new. So those habits are different for everybody. For for me, I like to have a little quiet time. I don't want anyone talking to me. I don't want any phones. I just want some kind of rejuvenation time. Um, I like to ride my bicycle. Um, eating healthy is really important and really makes a difference. Um, sometimes talking to my partner makes a big difference to someone who really cares and understands what's going on without judging. I, I think for some people, it's the opposite. They need to get out and have a party and, and you know, enjoy each other and really have some excitement. And those, those extroverts get rejuvenated that way. Some of my associates like to read, and that's really how they heal, is that they take some time to just read a non-medical, non-scientific, probably teenage-level book just to, to rejuvenate and not have to think for a while. Um Hiking, I have an associate who hikes a lot, and that, I think, makes a difference, too. Being healthy and exercising is really important. So how would you deal with this uh, compassion fatigue when you're in it? It's so uh, likely, I should say, not just possible, but likely to ignore your own well-being uh, in these circumstances uh, when you're caretaking or caregiving, and... Uh, suddenly something happens and you realize that you're off. There's something wrong with the way you're reacting to people or daily events. And that's exactly right. That's what got you into the trouble in the first place, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Being so focused on others before being focused on yourself. 
Um, and this, in this state of, if it gets to a point of this state of such severe exhaustion, it's really hard to be self-aware at that place. So it can be helpful in a team environment to kind of make a contract with a team about how we care for each other and to make a contract that it's supportive or safe to say to someone like Jane, gosh, you don't seem like yourself the last couple of days. How are you doing? Um, what's going on? Um, do you have some extra things that are going on in your life right now? And kind of just checking in with each other. At a practice level, there's some signs you can look for in your colleagues, um, like someone being absent more than usual, or someone who used to get a, along well with um, the team and now all of a sudden is kind of alienating themselves. Um, someone who's a rule follower who now becomes um, a rule breaker. Uh, maybe someone who's sharper or uh, more irritable or less patient than normal. Um, someone who's not completing their tasks, you know, leaving things um, left undone or not meeting deadlines. Or someone who's feeling really resistant to change, um, maybe pushing back more than they normally would. And so these are things we could look for in our colleagues. And if we have um, a culture of acceptance and support, it may feel safe to be able to go up to someone and say, hey, I'm, I'm concerned about you. You don't seem like yourself. Yeah, and that's a big task in and of itself, you know, creating that culture in, in a business environment yes. is no small no. task. And when you take veterinary medicine and shelter medicine and rescue work, mm-hmm. we know that all those individuals are at risk. So their work puts them at greater risk. And so knowing that, trying to have a proactive stance on educating your team about what to look for, how to take care of themselves, and more importantly, to create a culture of self-care. So if the environment around them is work, 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 make sure you're putting in 60 hours a week, um, that's not giving the right message to the team about getting home, having time with friends, having time with family, having time with animals, um, having time to exercise the things that we need to so that we can let go of our the tough parts of our day and start afresh again tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I, when I hear myself say something that was just not who I am, I know that that's a problem. This is where I'm going. So the first thing is recognizing it. You know, having a contract with people around you, they they have permission to tell you if they think that you're you're having trouble or you're being irritable or if they're worried about you, that they have permission to say it and you will listen to them. You have to do that ahead of time. You can't do that when you're in a bad place. That's a really hard agreement to make at that point in time. Um, but also, I think we all have had those situations where we look back on something where we're running a situation or interaction during the day and we think, oh my gosh, I don't even like that person that said that or acted that way. And that's a real big trigger for me of, oh boy, I need to take a step back and take a break and, and heal a little bit. Um, but when you're in it, you can't always recognize it. Often you cannot recognize it. You just feel overwhelmed and spending time on self Evaluation is the last thing you have time to do. So you need help from other people who are in your situation, see you, know your normal behavior. They can they can help you with that as well. Yeah, this is a really this is this is where you can run into a lot of walls, I think, because generally people don't like to ask for help, and, and also people 
tend to believe uh, that they can, oh, handle this themselves. Mm-hmm. Because it, really, our culture is very much like that. Yes. It's uh, don't ask, just find a way to do it yourself. And, and much to our detriment. Yeah. American culture definitely awards independence in nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of going solo, the, the pioneer cowboy. Uh, <laughs> Which is cowboy. all well and good until... Yeah, uh, there's a problem. And, and as health care professionals or as animal rescuers, um, a lot is put on us to be able to help others. Mm-hmm. And it can be really hard. It's our, not our nature necessarily to ask others to help us. So getting help is pretty much always advised when you've jarred yourself out of a situation where you know you're not acting right. You know, I'm a big supporter of having help, and I, I think different people go to different levels. Some people are just born happy, and that doesn't mean they don't have compassion fatigue, but it's mm-hmm. very rare, and they they heal out of it very quickly, and they're back to where they were. But unfortunately, a lot of us aren't quite as blessed. Um, so having, even if it's a coach or a therapist or someone who can really help you learn your own coping skills and also see what's being, you know, what's being triggered. Why this certain client makes you angry every time you see them. It may, may have nothing to do with that client. It might be a teacher you had or someone. Right, right. So, yeah, so you, you need to really realize those connections. I think to be as healthy and happy as you can be, you have to figure those things out. Yeah. And it's always good to have help on hand for that, a professional help. Absolutely. They, I can, don't they can help you get to it a lot quicker than just mulling yeah. it over. Yeah, most of us are in denial about those things. So it needs it's true. It's you true. need someone else out there to help. <laughs> <those out. laughs> uh, interestingly enough, uh, you see this um, kind of a warning in organizational behavior uh, books. There's one by Stephen Robbins, uh, and uh, he said people reflect and think about events inducing negative emotions five times as long as they do about events inducing strong positive emotions. And I see that an example of that all the time in, in shelter work and rescue work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we tend, um, the same thing in veterinary medicine, we tend to focus on the clinical cases that don't go well versus all the ones. So in a day, maybe we have one case that we're really struggling with being able to um, figure out what's going on with the animal, making it better. Mm-hmm. And forget about the, you know, 15 other appointments we saw that day where we were able to really help an animal's health um, in preventative medicine or um, in preventing, in treating a problem. Yeah, and that's really the nature of, of the job, to be analytical and, and do, figure out what happened and what went wrong, et cetera. But, but it's really, I think, especially tough on veterinarians because you've got, you know, the hands-on feature, all day long with the animals and the problems there, uh, uh, figuring out the medical end of things. And then at the end of the day, you have to analyze the business end of things to make sure, you know, that the operating costs versus impact on the future of the practice are in sync. Yes. I also think it's just human nature to hear the negative over the positive. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the first thing because we look to fix things, don't we? Yes, and that's sometimes, you know, a challenge or a stress issue when we can't fix something. And uh, and for us to be able to 
move forward from a situation that we can't fix and realize that we did what, what we could. We did the best we could with the resources that we had at the time mm-hmm. to save that animal or rescue that animal. Um, and um, it's a, a culture of perfectionism and wanting to save them all. Um, and it's a beautiful intention. And at the same time, reality doesn't allow us to always be able to do that. So uh, what are the resources available for animal care workers? You know, there's more and more resources available. I uh, I think we're all pretty much, as practitioners, speaking from a veterinary practitioner point of view, we're very isolated and we feel like we should be able to do everything by ourselves and fix ourselves. So we have to really look and get those set up ahead of time. Um, there's something, um, I can speak to Colorado, called peer assistance. When someone's having trouble, seeming depressed, it's a when we pay our uh, state license fee, a small portion of that goes to this peer assistance program. And these are mental health professionals that are available to any veterinarian or certified veterinary technician to access whenever they need them. So it's and there's confidentiality. It's a safe place to go without having um, to, to, you know, establish a new relationship with a therapist or a coach or someone like that. Mm-hmm. There, of course, are suicide hotlines for any profession. Um, but And the American Veterinary Medical Association is trying to get more and more information out about compassion fatigue and suicide. You know, Jane Shoss, who's also speaking on the podcast, is up at Colorado State University, and they will actually do classes and come in and help veterinary teams learn about compassion t- fatigue and set up a plan, which is an amazing resource that not everybody has. But we... Really appreciate that for sure. That is, and I hope more people copy that. Yeah. Wow, that's. I didn't. I didn't even know that you had um, uh, help because you have a veterinary or certified vet tech license from the state. That's really great. Yeah, and that came into existence just a couple years ago, and it's. It really speaks to how serious this issue is and how much we want to prevent it. What are the numbers on on this in terms of veterinarians uh, and the suicide numbers? You know, it's I don't have the exact numbers, but I will tell you, depending on which study you read, most studies do say that veterinarians have the highest suicide rate of any profession, including dentists who used to be the ones with that wonderful distinction. So um, as far as professionals go, veterinarians are really, really struggling. That's a great question, Mary and I. I know so many folks um, are running foster places in their own homes, for instance, and may feel isolated and alone in this. And I think it would be a wonderful opportunity to uh, bring together uh, fellow colleagues who are doing work in this area and to meet. So I have a group called Finding Meaning in Veterinary Medicine, and we could call it Finding Meaning in Animal Rescue or Finding Meaning in Shelter Medicine. To bring people together, um, we meet over a topic. So this week's meeting, for instance, focused on growth. So we talked about um, some of the challenges with growing and that sometimes growth happens with hardship. Um, and the creating that community, hearing each other's stories, realizing actually that we have more in common than we do apart from each other is a way of kind of um, what I call... Um, you know, unloading our backpacks, kind of we carry a lot of stuff in our backpack on our backs and by telling stories to other people, we can take some of that off and we can also receive maybe more perspective and kudos for the work we are doing and help us maybe shift our lens 
to what we are, you know, to focus on what we are actually accomplishing versus things that we we may felt like have been challenges. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, would you suggest uh, any website uh, for for further investigation? Let me look it up for you, Mary. But it's um, you can pick up a kit to start one of these groups. Mm-hmm. There's a group called the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, and they offer what's called the Finding Meaning in Medicine groups that we've adapted to veterinary medicine that could be adapted to all kinds of other settings such as shelters and animal rescue work. And they have a link on their website where you can apply for guidelines to starting one of these groups. And really, it's basically simple. It just needs a host who will offer a place for the group to meet, uh, setting up a time, um, someone willing to send out to a listserv of the groups you're working with to invite them to come over. Everyone brings, um, you choose a topic and everyone brings a story related to that topic. And so the price of admission is a story. Hmm. And um, and I think the rest, the group um, does the rest of the work itself. And each person's story is enough. There doesn't need to be an, um, an educator or an academic person in that environment. I think every person's story is enough to be able to give the group what they need. That sounds great. It really does. And, you know, the other thing that stood out for me uh, is when you were talking about self-care. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just is ringing in my ears. Um, and the, the idea of being mindful about not only yourself, but your colleagues, and how essential that is to your health. Yes. So I is think, it, go ahead. I was just going to ask if, if there's uh, uh, another place that people might go to get ideas on how to do that, because so many have lost their way in this regard. They have so long left themselves last on a list that they don't know how to do self-care. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's very individual, so I encourage you to find the things that really are relaxing and stress-relieving for you. Um, but things like a massage, a meditation, um, practicing yoga, sitting in a nice warm bath, reading a book that kind of lets you escape, maybe watching a movie. For some of us, socializing is very energizing as well, so scheduling a um, girls' night, or going out to a sports game with the guys, um, laughter. Laughter is an incredibly healing force. So going to a comedy show or um, watching a movie that makes us laugh, those kinds of things can all be um, a source of healing for us. I am a big proponent of seeking um, a coach or a counselor to be on your team. Great. Great. Uh, I think I don't even think you need to be at that state of severe exhaustion to benefit from that. And to just have someone who's on your team would be the way I'd put it. Someone who's on your team to listen to you, to hear your challenges, to help you develop um, tools for resilience, tools for stress management, um, help you make those commitments to your self-care plan. And I think it's really helpful to have someone outside of your work environment who can help you uh, maybe see things from a different perspective. Yes, that's that's excellent. Uh, thank you so much for this. Now, I do have questions from listeners. Uh, Dr. Celia Russell Lamar, she's uh, the owner of Northtown Animal Hospital in Santa Rosa, California, uh, writes that uh, Dr. Yin's suicide was very close to home. 
Uh, we are within an hour or so of her locations, and my colleague was one of her classmates. I also had another colleague commit suicide right after we'd been at a continuing education meeting, uh, and none of us at the table had any idea of her state of mind. How do you recognize potential suicides? Is there any answer for that, really? Gosh, this is a really good and a very tough question, and I think a lot of the profession was touched by um, Sophia's suicide. Mm. I would say it hit close to home. Yeah. Um, so I think two things. One, I think one of the most ch- biggest challenges in facing suicide is um, those who are left behind asking themselves, what could I have done? And carrying that. Um, and I think it's that's a normal feeling, that normal feeling of, I wish I could have done something. And so just acknowledging that for yourself. Um, the second thing is, looking for some of these signs in your colleagues, so changes in patterns of behavior, um, changes in um, spirit and interactions with the team, um, becoming perhaps, you know, what someone who once was quite cooperative and now seems to be struggling with change, um, to be able to check in with them and, and ask them how they're doing. Sometimes I think, as we said earlier in this conversation, you can be so exhausted that you don't don't realize um, that you are in need of help, and it may take someone else on the outside to say, I'm seeing this. Hmm. Sometimes um, people prior to committing suicide may give us um, some signals. And so... Yeah, that was a question I had with regard to, you know, why why don't they reach out? Why didn't she reach out? And we don't we can't assume that she didn't, but right. And that's really hard to know mm-hmm. um, whether she did or did not. Um, and so someone who's very serious about committing suicide might not because they want to be successful, but many people may not truly want to be um, successful and may um, may be asking for help beforehand and giving out signals. So um, they call it, I think, the ABCs, which is, Um, Being brave enough to ask someone, I'm sensing that I'm a little worried about what you're saying here. I'm I'm sensing that you may be thinking about taking your life. I need to ask you directly, are you thinking about taking your life? Um, And then the second question is, if so, um, talk to me about what you're thinking. What's your plan? So second step is to assess the plan and to see um, how serious and how... um, concrete and how successful that plan might be. And then step three, saying, as your friend, as your family member, I really feel like I need to reach out to someone because I think that you are in danger of being able to be successful at this. And so that means a call to 911 and having the police come, and the police know how to do this type of assessment as well. And it may mean um, that person going to first an assessment at the hospital by, you know, by a professional. I understand that um, animal workers don't feel so equipped at doing this, but those are three basic recommendations. So hard, and I think that this speaks to the fact that we all, anyone who is associated with someone who has taken their own life, feel guilty. And I, I, I will answer the question specifically in a minute, but I just want to take this opportunity to remind people that 
grief in human beings has a very clear process and guilt is one of the very first steps of that process so if you whether it's loss of an animal loss of a a friend or to natural causes or suicide guilt can be a huge component of that and i encourage people to realize that they're human and that that's part of grieving and to understand it for what it is and try to try to give themselves a little bit of a break about it that it's not their fault um people that really can play it off and have a plan and want to kill themselves and are suicidal, um, you can't tell. I don't think that people, especially people that see them casually or occasionally, would know. I think people close to them would know. People that see that they're not engaging in plans for the future and um, people who aren't um, doing things that they normally do in their normal routine. So let's say I go to church on Sundays and I'm no longer going to church and I like to hike on Tuesdays. I'm not hiking at all. Um, I like to cook things. I'm not cooking. When all of those things that make up that person's personality disappear or start to go away, I think that's a big warning sign that something's happening. I don't think if you know someone casually or see them two or three times a year that you you can pick that up. I just don't think it's possible. Um, but if you are close to someone, then you can. Yes, and you know, I've heard, uh, and I can't quote anything official right now, but um about the state of mind uh, you may notice that your friend uh, is depressed and withdrawn that kind of thing and then suddenly there seems to be a positive yeah. shift in their attitude and and they they seem almost you know as if they're back to normal but i've heard that that's only because they've decided yeah. And you know, I don't know if it's just a shift. It's a huge swing. And it goes from depression to euphoria, usually. Oh, oh, okay. And I think that that has more to do with, I don't have to suffer anymore. I have a plan, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to suffer anymore. And I can imagine if you're suffering that much and you realize you don't have to suffer anymore, that that would be euphoric. Yeah. Um, but if someone's been really down for a long period of time, there hasn't been a process to address that, and all of a sudden they're euphoric, I think that's a huge red flag. Vicki Stringfellow Cook of Bunny's blog uh, at bunnyjeancook.blogspot.com said that she read somewhere that because vets put animals down on a regular basis, they're more willing to consider the option than other folks. How do you feel about that? Yeah, and I I think, um, I don't know that it's just true for veterinarians. I think anyone in the healthcare professional has access to medications that could end their life. And so the statistics indicate that it's higher, um, suicide is higher in healthcare professionals, and um, it's easier to be able to have access to medications that could end a life. And uh, I guess in that, in, in a similar line, um, does the effect of euthanizing animals on a daily basis uh, uh, perhaps put this idea a little more in the forefront of, of uh, animal care workers' heads, whether they're veterinarians, vet techs, or 
or they just work in a shelter environment? It's a great question, Mary, and it comes up when you read the literature on on suicide and veterinarians that that may be a component. I don't know that we have any objective information on that. I think there's definitely a culture of veterinarians on ending suffering, and that's how we view euthanasia for our patients. And I suspect it could be taken to end suffering for ourselves. So often someone who commits suicide has had a lot of anguish, mental, emotional, and psychological anguish, or even spiritual anguish. And so it may be that a veterinarian may think, well, this is a way for me to end my suffering as I do for my patients. What do you say to that? I've heard it. I don't know where if there's many statistics on it. I don't really think that it's necessarily access to drugs that makes a difference, although we do have access to euthanasia solution. Um, but to me, I mean, how many times in a week do I have a conversation with a client talking to them about suffering and relief of suffering and good death, with which euthanasia means, mm-hmm. and how I truly believe that I couldn't practice medicine if I wasn't able to relieve suffering. And just logically, if I were suffering to that level, how could I not apply some of that logic to myself, mm-hmm. um, having saying it over and over and believing in it? So I think it, it probably does have something to do with seeing animals being relieved of their suffering regularly and seeing how peaceful they are. Um, that probably adds to the suicide rate in veterinarians, but I don't know that we have any data on that. Okay. Um, uh, Peggy Frizon, she's an author and freelance writer at PeggyFrizon.com, said that uh, nearly everyone she knows in animal rescue has this problem because there's so much need and they can only do so much. Yes. Um, Most of them devote long hours, but they never see an end it's like being a postal worker, mm-hmm. except that you're dealing with sentient beings. Um, how can they avoid being haunted by those they can't help? This is a frequent problem. Yeah, I I hear that challenge. I'm I'm thinking about a quote from James Harriet, and I apologize. I'm gonna uh, rephrase it, so I apologize if I'm mixing up your words. Um, it goes something like this um, about euthanasia. Although I hate um, doing this, I hate um, euthanizing animals. At the same time, I know that they had a gentle touch and someone who cared for them at a, and um, at that time. And so I think sometimes what's hard for animal rescue workers and shelter workers is the amount of animals that they euthanize because they can't find necessarily homes for them all or it's, or it's not appropriate to find homes for some of the animals. And it means to euthanize them. And I, I think that we could focus on the, the death and loss of that animal. I think also we could think about um, that we were there with them, that they had someone who cared, who was loving with them, who was gentle with them, who was whispering kind things in their ears at that time. And that, to me, is a far better death than what happens to some of our animals out who may get a disease and they may suffer from that disease or maybe get hit by a car or may come across a human who is um, abusive to them. So euthanasia is a gift that we can give them and 
although it's tragic that we have to euthanize so many animals in those environments, at the same time that that we can bring them so much kindness at that one moment that they may not get elsewhere. And I think I might help think about um, if I don't take care of myself, and we talk to our clients about this as veterinarians, is I need you to take care of yourself while I take care of your animal in the hospital because I'm going to discharge your animal to your home and I'm going to need you to be strong and energized and ready to take care of them. So same thing with shelter or rescue workers. We need to take care of ourselves because even though the need far exceeds our capacity, we also need to be able to do it all over again tomorrow and the next day. And that if we burn out or get so exhausted that we start suffering from depression and start having health issues, then we cannot be present to do what we do on a daily basis. So our self-preservation has to come first. And what actually gets us in this state um, is this workaholic attitude, right? Mm -hmm. But there's still more to do. So I'll do more, and then I'll get more exhausted, and I'll do more, and I'll get more exhausted, and I'll do more. And, you know, it's this ever-ending vicious cycle Uh, downward spiral Um, and that we need to say you know if I go home now and see my family and have a good meal and maybe get out of my bike ride I can actually do this again for what animals I can take care of tomorrow right so they're as bad as veterinarians are looking at the negative and not taking credit Mm -hmm. for the positive Um, how often do rescuers think about all of those animals that were helped versus how often do they think about the one that wasn't or the one they didn't have room for um, or the one that had to be euthanized even though it was a relatively healthy animal. So I think just, you know, this is the pot calling the kettle black, but I do think that honoring the good you do is important. Um, I will say that many people that go into veterinary medicine and rescue and shelter work do it because of an extreme compassion for an animal, animals, and sometimes that develops because we relate better to animals than we do to people, and we're not getting a lot of our people needs met because we're you you were spending all of our time with animals, which is great. But as far as therapy, talking through your issues, talking through what could make you happier, um, that's hard to do two-way with a dog, one-way absolutely, <laughs> you know. Um, and so remembering that you do need that connection still. And as rescuers and veterinarians, we do have sometimes have this belief system that nobody cares as much as I do, and that's a huge responsibility to carry on our shoulders, and a lot of people care. So remembering you're not in it alone. Um, you know, Jane Shaw also put together these meaning in veterinary medicine groups that I participated in for a while that were just amazing where a group of rescue animal rescuers, shelter workers could do this, but this was a group of veterinarians that met once a month and had a subject like, um, you know, tell us why you got into veterinary medicine in the first place. And it was a group of six or seven people that just really reconnected for the passion and the reasoning behind doing it. Mm -hmm. And that was um, definitely healing. But, uh, yeah, rescuers and shelter workers are at least as susceptible as veterinarians are. Jody Edward Stone from Heart Like a Dog uh, asks, what can bloggers as consumers of vet practices do or share that would help vets understand we appreciate what they do? 
What a sweet question. (laughs) She's a very sweet person. (laughs) That is, yeah, um, touching. And and actually that brings up a good point because we're so used to being on and doing what we need to be doing and making everyone feel cared about when people actually stop and tell us how much we're cared about. Sometimes it's hard for us to to take, you know, we get um, Mm teary-eyed because it's something we're not... I mean, we hear it, but we we discount it sometimes, and we um, we get into to focus. So, I mean, there are things, little things like when a client has to wait, and I come in and I apologize, and they you say something like, you know, I know you're probably having a difficult day, or if it was my animal that needed you in that time, I would have been glad you are there. You know, those things make a big difference to me. Um, yeah. I think just you know, it's strange, but we get most cards and letters and emails and the kindest words almost always after a euthanasia (laughs) Um, after we put an animal to sleep about how much how peaceful it was and how much they appreciate all we've done Um, but doing it at other times just randomly without a reason I think even touches us at least as much Um, it's we're human too we're really compassionate about animals and just just being kind, which most of our clients are, you know. But mm-hmm. I love the question. It really touches me. So do you think this is in reference to that blogging that was so stressful for that one veterinarian who committed suicide? Yeah. Okay. So I think what bloggers can do mm-hmm. is to provide balanced perspective. Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion. Yeah. Because there, so, there's a lot of imbalance out there. Yeah. So, so I think there's an opportunity for bloggers to share a story of um, a positive a positive story or to invite um, your audience to contribute. You know, so I think there's an opportunity for bloggers to um, ask their followers to say, hey, this question came in today. I would really like to hear your stories about a time when your veterinarian really was there for you. Yeah. And to, you know, and then to be able to post those stories. And put that out there because, you know, as as we both said <laughs> and experts say, we dwell on the negative. Yes. yes. And it's, it's time to turn that around. Yes. And no human is ever perfect. And no, therefore, no veterinarian is ever perfect. And mm-hmm. we're not always going to do everything right that our clients would like. But I'd like to think that as a whole, our profession is caring and compassionate and kind and gentle and thoughtful about our patients and clients and striving to enhance um, the care of our patients as well as the care we provide our clients. Okay. Well, thank you so much for this in-depth look at compassion fatigue and the various paths it can take. Uh, It's a very important discussion, and I hope that uh, the discussion continues. You're welcome. So, Jane, we end now uh, with sharing uh, web contact information. So if you would like uh, to direct people to either a website or your Facebook page, that would be great. So on the website for my program, my program name is Veterinary Communication for Professional Excellence, and the website address is www.veterinary-communication.colostate. So Colo, C-O-L-O, state, dot E-D-U. And that's because it's at Colorado State University. So 
It's abbreviated Kahlo State. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. It's uh, it's been very enlightening, and I think it'll be important in the ongoing discussion of compassion fatigue and uh, how to turn things around in organizations and uh, in individual circumstances. It was a pleasure to be with you, and my closing remark would be to commit to care for yourself so that you can continue to care for the animals that you you love so much. Thank you. Well, I thank you so much for being with us for this uh, and, and for providing uh, uh, Jane Shaw. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what Her words contact. always, they just make things right for me, so I knew she needed to be a part of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, why don't you go ahead and share your web contact information, too? So I have Tender Touch Animal Hospital in Denver, and the website is tendertouchvet.com. Okay, excellent. Again, (laughs) Dr. April Steele, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for addressing this really important issue. And to the audience, thanks for listening.